Hey everybody, welcome to the official Screenwriting Podcast. I'm Adam Levenberg, and this week I will be covering topics such as how do you get a reader job, uh, sales versus options, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about Rat Race and It's a Wonderful Life, two oldies but goodies but problematic films. Okay, so the first question, how do you get a reader job? I got an email from a client of mine who says, I have an exceptional student who has a big dream of assessing literary material, mainly books, and determining if they would be good adaptations for movies. Um, I'm going to immediately burst that bubble. If you are interested in doing that, then your job is to become a literary agent uh, or and go work at an agency. What, you know, the, the job of reading uh, or evaluating stuff, you could also become a development executive, which is a really hard thing to do these days because there's just a fraction of the jobs out there that there used to be. And when I say a fraction, I'm talking about there may be 20% as many um, development jobs as there were 25 years ago. And that, that that's actually a high estimate. So at least four out of five development jobs has gone down the drain in the last 25 years. All right, so the thing about getting a reader job is, is if you're talking about a freelance reader, because I hear that a lot, like, hey, I live in Nebraska and I would love to read scripts for a Hollywood producer. How do I do that? You can't. You can't get those jobs. In fact, I can tell you how difficult it is for me, a former development executive who read for an A-list actor and worked for an A-list actor and then now reads for a two-time Oscar-winning actress, I think the most interesting of all the two-time Oscar-winning actresses, um, and for a producer who is beloved for her amazing taste in material and high-end literary properties and who has sold multiple books at over a million dollars a piece to studios for the film right uh, sales. All that didn't even get me, uh, th there was actually, there's a brand new agency out there and a friend said, uh, sent me a listing that they'd put out, hey, send us your resumes for readers. Using the three names that I've read for and read for currently and the references that I have, I put those in the subject heading, I didn't even get an email back. Now again, the, you know, when they send something like that out, the assumption is that they're gonna get between 500 and 2000 emails uh, looking to fill those reader positions. But the reality is uh, that reader jobs are handed to people. That's how you get them. Um, you know, even, uh, even my first reader job reading for USA Films, it was because a friend of mine was the story editor. It was his job to assign out 100% of the, of the scripts that were coming into the studio to readers. So every day, part of his job was to say, okay, we've gotten these 12 scripts in today. Uh, we have this pool of writers and I get to assign the material to them. Uh, and then, you know, collect their coverages and so forth. So the thing about that, when I started it, I was a college student. I did not know what I was doing, even though I thought that I did, because I said, oh, I interned with a literary agent. I've interned for a production company and I interned for a manager slash producer uh, who represented writers and directors. So I thought that I understood what I was doing when I was looking at material. Now I did have those first maybe 200 scripts under my belt that I talk about that you have to read. And I think that I did an effective job of evaluating material for whether or not it was worth the executive's time to look at or potentially consider buying. I did that, but I didn't really know how to talk about material. And that's okay, because really the job of readers is to put together a summary so that whoever's reading it can um, not have to read the material, not have to read a 110-page script or a 450-page book, but can read your five or six pages, get the general gist of it, and then get on the phone and make whatever decisions they need to in terms of trying to move forward with the project or not in terms of getting it sold. And, uh, you know, when I started as a reader, I was thrown the absolute worst material. 
So I had a friend hand me this position, and one of the reasons he did it was because there was a lot of garbage that was coming in, meaning scripts that were basically as submissions that were taken as favors because, you know, when a nice person calls up and says, hey, I'm a manager, and I have this script, and I'm really excited about it, you say, okay, fine, you can submit it to us. And then you send it to me, uh, or he would send it to me, because he knew that this was a junk submission. This submission was not something that the studio was going to take seriously from a writer that nobody heard of coming from a manager, an agent that nobody had ever heard of. So I got sort of to cut my teeth on really bad material. And over the course of doing all those coverages, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 of them, I was able to start moving up. And the in, in terms of the material that I got, they still paid me the same amount, but I was able to get overnight assignments, which pay about 30% more. And on top of that, I was uh, able to start reading for the president and senior vice president in the studio. And then I was reading top material uh, from top writers and had the exciting experience of doing something like passing on a Robert Towns script. Can you imagine that? I, I, I got to pass on a Robert Towns script at like 23 years old. Um, actually, I was even a little younger than that, I think. So... You know, the thing about these uh, these jobs is that they're nearly impossible to get. They're personally handed to people. Uh, any development executive has development executive friends who are out of work or, you know, uh, has friends who have retired from, you know, their job and maybe are having a baby now or raising some kids, but like to make 100 or 200 or 300 bucks here and there. So those are the people that get the jobs, the people who are qualified for them. And if you're outside the industry, you're not qualified for them. You're not qualified to be paid. And you you shouldn't take an unpaid reader job for somebody because anybody who's relying on unpaid readers out there in the ether, not in LA, like, you know, not sort of serious interns, but like just people they can send scripts to who are doing free coverage for them. I mean, it's, it's a bullshit exercise on both sides of the table because if that producer was smart, they would just look at the fucking material themselves. They would open the script and they would keep reading until they didn't want to read anymore. Because remember, I talk about that a lot. Like, it's your job to keep somebody wanting to read more. So, uh, it's nearly impossible work to find. It is personally handed from, uh, sometimes from reader to reader, or from, or from, like, an executive or an assistant who has a friend who has, you know, it's that kind of thing. It's not the kind of thing where you can, you can say, hey, maybe this is a good way that I can make some extra money on the side. Believe me. I have enough problems finding new clients. I have a new client that I just started working with last week, a new producing client. And, you know, that was something that came to me through a friend and a personal recommendation. Once this producer saw the names that I've worked for, he was like, holy shit, like, I want you reading for me too. So I'm reading for him now. But, um, you know, it's not something that people just fall, or it is something people can fall into. I guess technically I fell into doing it initially. Um, but you know, it's, it's just not something that people outside the industry could do. And anybody who's selling you a book on it or a course on it, or let me pay me and I'll tell you how to do it is a fucking liar. Um, and there are some of those people out there. And in fact, I wanted to challenge one of those people to find me some work because with the credits that I have or the, the names that I've read for and continue to read for, you would think that it would be easier for me to find more clients like that. Because again, I love getting that work. It allows me to sort of fill in whatever gaps I have in my week, should I have any. And if I don't have any gaps, I can always do it in a couple extra hours of work at night or, you know, take a weekend day or two to do it. So, um, you know, it's great work if you can get it, but it's not something you should look to do if you're not already here in LA working for production companies and have that experience under your belt. Okay, um, a heads up that I did a 
Uh, I did an interview with the Bat Signal podcast last week. I want you to listen to it if you're interested in hearing what I have to say about all the big summer movies and some of the directors who are working on them. And, you know, I talk Wolverine, Iron Man 3. I, I talk a little bit about Oz. Uh, it's a great conversation that I had with Jeff Sussman, who runs the Bat Signal podcast. Uh, Bat Signal started out as a podcast devoted solely to The Dark Knight Rises and has widened its focus since the release of that film. Uh, and will continue to do so. So I was glad to be on that. I also did an interview with Casey Ryan's Cutting Room Floor podcast. That's something, if you've already read my book, don't bother because we only talk about my book a little bit, but it's a good podcast to look at. And I know like he talked to Ann Lauer a little bit ago. Listen to Ann Lauer's interviews instead of listening to mine. Ann Lauer's awesome. She was somebody who started out with Blake Snyder and is somebody who made a huge change in the book that I wrote because she was the one who told me that Blake Snyder realized that he had to stop defending the things he was saying in his book from obvious exceptions. And that was huge for me. It allowed me to present a lean and mean approach to my book uh, as opposed to me being able to guess the counterexamples that other people would come up with based on what I was saying and then use those counterexamples and talk about why those counterexamples don't apply. Uh, for the purposes of what I was trying to talk about. So in any case, sales versus options, really quickly, this is something that I have a huge problem with. And I have a huge problem with with any website that's out there, all the, or anybody uh, who is interacting with unrepresented writers, all they wanna do is convince you that there's a way in based on working with them. And the way that they do that is they constantly say, oh, this play, this script got optioned and that one got optioned and that one got optioned. And this week we had two new options. And you know what? Any site that has that going on, then I can, if they're claiming two options a week, then those are bullshit. Then they're willing to tell you anything. Um, there's no sort of filter on it. And I talk about that a little bit in my book. I say like you're talking about an unrepresented writer optioning their script to a bullshit producer, maybe even possibly paying a lawyer money for the privilege to do so because sometimes those contracts, if you're unrepresented, can cost you one or two or three or four thousand dollars depending on the amount of back and forth that goes on. And it's for nothing because you're optioning it to somebody who has no capacity to get made and often doesn't know what the fuck they're doing, um, which means, uh, I can absolutely assure you this, the worst script I was ever sent from a client, uh, a consultation client, said that the script had been optioned before. And he wanted to find out why it hadn't moved forward. And part of the reason was that he had no idea how to write a screenplay. I mean, none. Like, it was, it was completely remedial shit. Like, this is how dialogue should look. And some fucking moron optioned it, and he felt good about himself as an option writer. But, um... You know, it is interesting because there's a lot of funny business that goes on now. There's not as many scripts that are being sold to studios. Studios buy scripts. They option do option books, but they buy scripts. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot of funny business, meaning that a lot of people will run around claiming producers and, uh, you know, production companies will claim that they've bought a script when really they've optioned it. Now, there's not a ton of examples out there that I can point to. I was impressed, though, to see that CBS Films, you know, when a couple of projects recently, they've announced that they've optioned scripts. And I think that's great. I think it's great that they're honest about it, that they that they optioned it, they didn't buy it. And, you know, it's interesting that even in one of the articles I found about this, because I actually had a disagreement about this with a friend of mine whose production company was claiming they bought something, and I was like, you guys didn't buy it. You optioned it. There's a huge fucking difference. Um, the thing that I found 
is that um, in this Hollywood Reporter article, it starts off, CBS Films has optioned the script blank, and then later on it says, this is the first sale for the writer. No, it's not a sale. And it, that's important for everybody involved to sort of recognize because this writer, if he just optioned the script, you know, if he worked at McDonald's, the option money on the script probably would not allow him to quit his job at McDonald's. Um, you know, an option usually pays 10% of what the eventual purchase price would be. So I think 20 grand minus agent fee is now 18 grand, pay some taxes, you're at 14 grand. That's not enough to feed and house one person, let alone a family for a year. And, and by the way, I'm not suggesting that these scripts are not good, but as somebody personally who likes to read the scripts that sell to studios whenever possible, I actually would probably put that lower on the list because if a script is optioned to a big production company, well, actually CBS Films is there, they are more than a production company. They make films, they can finance them, they can get stuff internationally financed, they buy films from the international market, such as The Mechanic, I, I, which is a film that they just sort of picked up the, the domestic rights for, and then they can put those films in theaters and buy all the ads on TV and put the billboards up that you see. So they really have a lot of capacity there, and that's why it's so fascinating to me that they're actually, um, just optioning material now, which is a change in the way that it used to work. But what it tells me if they've optioned something is that every studio didn't want to buy it. Every studio looked at it and passed. Because why would any agent or manager option something to one buyer if all the other buyers haven't looked at it and decided that we don't want to buy it? So I, again, like this is sort of why it's important to be clear on what actually is going on. Plus, you know, I, I don't think it's to anybody's benefit to claim that there's a sale when there's not a sale because then you assume that the material is gone. And I know personally, I always assume that books are available. No, it doesn't matter if I know that they're set up at studios, that is irrelevant to whether or not it's still under option or will be under option next year at the studio. So I, I just wanted to talk about that a little bit and to be really careful when you see any sort of websites, uh, you know, wall of fame, because I call it the wall of shame often. It's, it's them announcing this person got an agent and this person got a manager and they give no credibility whatsoever um, to whether or not this person was worth being represented by in the first place. Because I know how difficult it is for those people out there who are not represented to, to not have that in their life and to want that so desperately. But, you know, my theory on this, and again, you can feel free to disagree with me. My theory is, if you can only get represented by a shitty agent or manager, two things are happening. One, that agent or manager lucked out because they have your material. Or two, your shit's not good enough for the big leagues. And it's hard enough for the writers at the big agencies to make script sales today. It's hard enough for the big for the big guns to do it. So, you know, to me, the the, the biggest tragedy of of what goes on in terms of these companies selling themselves to you and their services is that they are willing to put out there this person got optioned and this person got represented and they don't seem to give a shit about whether or not it's a real option or it's real effective representation. And that pisses me off because I, it doesn't, I, I don't feel the, the ability to do that. When somebody that I've worked with gets represented by somebody that I'm not all excited, that excited about, I'll often say that, I'll figure out a nice way to put it, but you know, I'll say, well, you know, it's the kind of thing you want to keep your other eyes open for maybe something else down the line. Um, but you know, I, I know often that these people need to improve their writing in order to get what I consider to be real representation. Because remember, there's people who can sell your shit and there's everybody else, and you want to be with the people who can sell your shit. Um, okay, and I, by the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna shame some some companies right now.
because a former client of mine put me on this list and I see, look at this. Table Read My Screenplay Competition says, it was a pleasure to read this script. The screenplay had action, humor, romance, and strong dramatic pl plotting. What? Why, you know, whenever I see this kind of thing, whenever I see this, if you've ever been told this by a coverage outlet, that your script is great, and I know they don't use the word great, but they use the word, it's a pleasure to read it. Now, I had trouble reading a version of this script years ago, and I won't talk about what it is, or the writer, who, by the way, is very talented, um, but... The script was not a pleasure to read. And the idea that this company would have the balls just because he paid the money to do that and say this it has action, humor, romance, and strong dramatic plotting, not really. Um, you know, it's it's the old uh, trick of, of these companies trying to make you feel good about hiring them. And I think that that's disgusting. This is my also my problem with a lot of screenwriting contests because so many people end up being semi-finalists that I don't th that I think still have a path in front of them on the road to becoming a professional screenwriter. They're not there yet, and so many people feel good about that. Oh, I I you know was able to become a semi-finalist or a finalist in this thing, and you know I I just I hate giving pat on the backs to writers who really just need help and need some guidance and you know it's a hard thing to get you might have to pay a little bit for it uh you know nobody nobody ever would question you know paying a trainer um i've paid a trainer upwards of 100 bucks a week to to work me out because it's something that i wasn't able to sort of get on my own um and i appreciated that and yet for some reason people think oh that, you know, I don't have to pay for any of this feedback. And some people don't. Some people can actually write a script, sit down, do it, and it they just get it. They get the medium. But other people need help. And, you know, that's one of the things that I definitely like to do with writers, uh, including I, I want to talk real quickly because when I was talking about the sale versus option, I forgot the reason I brought it up. The reason I brought it up is because a writer that I worked with um, sold his script this week, supposedly. And I had a friend go on to... Um, trackingboard.com which I'm not a member of and find out well who bought it because I couldn't get that information I could just see on trackingboard.com that it had sold and you know I, I don't know I haven't asked the writer yet but I, I don't think that it was an actual sale I think it might have been an option and I don't know whether or not it was even worth optioning to the person who I, I, look if they were paying it was worth it it was definitely worth it I, I, I'll take that back but um you know, I, I don't know that I would have loved to have talked to him a little bit to see that he was being effectively represented and that he had read my books, so that he would know things like if you do free rewrites under this option that they're paying you for, unless they're paying you a shit ton of money for the rewrite, you get to keep the rewrites. I know I've said that before, but that's one of the sort of tidbits that I have in my book. And, and by the way, I, I want to be clear. Um, this is somebody who I had started interacting with on Twitter and, you know, had written some really funny stuff. And I'd even read one of his uh, pilots a little that I offered to read for free because I thought, wow, this guy is so funny. Um, and the script that sold, let's just call it a sale for the sake of argument, not even a comedy. Uh, it It's a really interesting horror thriller, if you will, or it's, it's much closer to a contained thriller, I guess. Uh, a heads up that you can take my screenwriting course if you're in LA. Email me for details on that. It always keeps going. Uh, so, you know, if you're in LA and interested, it's always starting within a few weeks because it only runs for six weeks. And you can hire me to read your script if you're not in LA. 
299 bucks. I'm going to keep that promotion going. You just pay on my website, officialscreenwriting.com, for a, re a rewrite consultation, but it's not. I'm going to read your script. It's just that that uh, is down there is 299. You email me your script. I do notes on it, and then we talk on the phone. If you're international, we talk on Skype, and I deliver those notes to you, and we chat back and forth. All the questions you have get answered. We come up with... Uh, a, a path for you to figure out do you continue write, rewriting this do you work on something else you know whatever it is and also I still have the $99 concept consultation highly recommend that I, I really wish more people would take advantage of that because what what is a year of your time worth because that's the time that people put into one project and there's only so many years that you're gonna put in and only so many projects that you're going to write before you say fuck it I'm done with screenwriting I've met so many writers that's happened to where they've they've written the five or six or seven scripts, which for those of you who know is often sort of the point where people get good if they're getting effective feedback, by the way. That's the thing that nobody ever talks about. Nobody ever talks about the effective feedback that comes in these writers advancing for each script and then getting better. Um, and that, that generally comes with getting professional feedback in some form or another. Uh, again, if all your friends aren't development executives, then you're going to have to pay for that feedback that some people would get for free. But in any case, 99 bucks. We'll spend an hour on the phone. You can send me up to five pages. What are you waiting for? Come on. Uh, also, I want to talk real quickly about Rat Race. I was shocked with the amount of offensive stereotypes and homophobic and transphobic comedy moments in this film, none of which are incredibly funny, by the way. I think it is something that you should be taking into account, um, especially male writers who like to, especially like in buddy movies, there is a sort of a, I'm trying to figure out a way to put this. I'm going to move on from that thought. Um, but in Rat Race, the there are so many moments where, you know, like there's a moment in the be very beginning of the movie, Cuba Gooding Jr. is introduced, there's a bartender in front of him, it looks like a guy from behind, and he goes, oh, excuse me, miss, and this bartender turns around, and he goes, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were a woman, and she says, I am a woman, and, you know, she's got like a sort of really short haircut, no makeup, um, and it's supposed to be funny, it's not. There's another scene where a I Love Lucy impersonator uh, reveals that he's a he um you know basically he's a drag queen playing lucille ball and cuba Gooding jr jumps back and his eyes pop out of his head like he just saw a ghost like he's terrified of this thing and, and john lovitz there's a scene where john lovitz uh is there's women butch women riding bicycle uh, motorcycles by his car and he says to them oh i like your dyke i, I mean bike so he basically calls these women dykes um well, no he does he uses the word dyke and there's one other moment. Well, I, I won't even get into that other one. Um, so, again, be really careful with this stuff. Rat Race was only 12 years ago, and that shit would never fly today. And it would really probably potentially offend, you know, readers who are young and forward-thinking, you know, that is, who uh, works in Hollywood. And I, I think that that's something to keep in mind, that... The representations of minorities is something, you know, that you want to be very conscious about when you're doing things. And, you know, uh, Amy Pascal talked about this recently. Uh, you know, this is, it is no longer appropriate for characters to call each other fag. Like you can't, in a just sort of throwing it around kind of way. It's not appropriate. It's, you know, not something that you're getting away with or 
And it also shows sort of a lack of a current mindset, the fact that you wouldn't know that, because that actually comes up relatively commonly. I would say at least once every two, three months I see that in scripts. And I say to the writer, like, dude, who do you think is like, going to be reading this? And, you know, who do you, th who do you think the executives are going to be? And why do you think it's appropriate in 2013 to throw it around like it was still you know, 1994 and you're on the playground? It's not like the world is changing. By the way, if you want to talk about a movie where the world changes a lot, one day I'll do maybe, I would even maybe do a full running commentary of 21 Jump Street, the movie. Uh, this is a film that absolutely recognizes the way that the social world has changed as it relates to high school. And th that's the entire premise of the comedy of this film that Jonah Hill goes and Channing Tatum go back to high school. Jonah Hill is popular because he's in the theater group and He's funny and he's smart and Channing Tatum is the dumb jock who, you know, the glory years of his life were in high school as the captain of the football team and now he is reviled and looked down upon and he has nobody to sit with at lunch because he's not the cool kid anymore. He's the dumb jock. And I think that that's a film that everybody can enjoy. It's a nearly perfect movie if you haven't seen it. Real quickly, I'll talk A Wonderful Life. I saw this movie for the first time this week. This movie is the number 11 greatest film ever on the AFI list, which I think the AFI list is fucking bullshit anyway. But I, it speaks to, you know, this is a classic American film. And it's probably one of the worst classic American films that I've ever come across. Because, you know, that maybe isn't fair because I don't do a ton of older film watching. I went to USC film school. I saw more than enough. Uh, films from the great filmmakers of our time or, or of the times preceding our time um, and I'm relatively you know it takes sort of a reason for me to go back and watch something because I just have issues with it and the, the screenwriting medium has changed so much that what interests and entertains me about movies tends not to be there in older films I think Citizen Kane still works I think Casablanca pretty much works today um, meaning that like it would entertain an audience. I don't quite know what it is about A Wonderful Life, though, that inspires such love, other than it's a tradition. And it's a Christmas tradition, which makes people even more nostalgic. Um, but the film itself, here's the thing. It's a Scrooge Christmas Carol type tale told from the perspective of Bob Cratchit, uh, a nice guy. So it's a nice guy, who, uh, George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, who finds out what life would be like if he was never born because he runs a bank and he thinks that he's probably on his way to prison because his um, his uncle who is senile just misplaced $8,000 and the bank's probably going to have to close down. He's going to go to prison and he wishes he had never been born and an angel comes down. Now, by the way, the angel's introduced at the opening of the film. We get we, we see a shot of space and we see God or we don't see God, we hear God filling us in uh-oh like you know george bailey's in trouble you know we need he's lost his faith and we need somebody to show him you know what it is that what it means to live and to appreciate what you have and to recognize that living a good life and helping others does have value and virtue to it and we are introduced to clarence who is a junior angel who's put on the case Clarence does not have his wings yet, he, but if he can help George Bailey, he's coming back to heaven with a promotion. He's getting promoted, he'll get his wings. So they set that up in the first two minutes of the film. And then, I swear to God, it takes one hour and 40 minutes for Clarence to drop into this film. One hour and 40 minutes. 
And the entire movie, we literally set up George's life all the way from the time he's about 20 years old to the time that he's pushing mid-30s. We meet, we see him, you know, courting his wife. We see him constantly, repeatedly putting off the advancement of his own life to go to college and so forth in order to help the family and help the town that he lives in. And this goes on for an hour and 40 minutes. That, you know, the, the, it's no wonder that they remade Miracle on 34th Street and people say, oh, they could never remake A Wonderful Life because the reason they can't remake it is because there's no fucking movie there. I mean, there's no movie as it, again, I have no problem if you love this movie, but from a screenwriting perspective, the promise of the premise, I love that Blake Snyder line. What's the promise of your premise? The promise of this premise is a Christmas carol. It's through this fantasy device of an angel coming down from heaven, we're going to show you what your life and what the town, or I'm sorry, what the town and the people that you care about, what their lives would be like if you had never been born. You think that they would all be better off without you, but we're going to show you that that's not the case. Well, that's the whole idea of A Christmas Carol. A Christmas Carol doesn't take an hour and 40 minutes before they start, you know, taking the ghost of Christmas past. Um, but in this movie, it does. And there's only 20 minutes of looking at this alternative reality before we cut back to the real reality of George Bailey that he's experiencing. And uh, he goes around fixing up, you know, tying up the loose ends of the film and proclaiming that he's the luckiest man on earth because he now appreciates what he didn't totally appreciate before. This does not work as a screenplay today. And this is one of the reasons that I'm so, I feel so strongly that it's up to film teachers and film professors to show their students the movies that actually function like effective Hollywood films so that they can learn from them. You know, my favorite example of this is I think that Goodfellas is Martin Scorsese's greatest film. It just, and it's almost possible that he'll never make a better movie than Goodfellas. I think many of you out there who know movies probably would agree with me that it's maybe 50-50 at this point because he does get to make movies constantly at this now, but there's a very good chance he'll never make a better film. Goodfellas is not the best screenplay he ever worked with. You know, a film is about so much more than that. It's it's about the editing. It's about the music choices. It's about the performances. It's about the, you know, the the camera work. It's it's about a lot of things that aren't necessarily screenplay. But if you want to talk about the greatest screenplay Scorsese's worked with, maybe After Hours, maybe The Departed, maybe Hugo recently. Now it's interesting. I, I'll talk real quickly about Hugo because. Hugo's a great example of a very specialized story form that I'm not a huge fan of. These movies tend not to move me because the Hugo is the same movie as Almost Famous, another movie that most people loved, and just, it's not for me, and here's why. Because these movies have static protagonists. The idea is that you introduce a huge ensemble, you introduce all the ensemble's problems, and everybody in the ensemble evolves. And the hero of the film is basically the eye of the storm. He's the, the center of things in both of those films. And it's a very particular type of story form. So, you know, to me, Hugo just uh, did not have the element of a hero in, re in relentless pursuit of a goal that I kind of need in order to stay entertained during a two-hour and 10 or 20-minute movie. So, um, my, my point being that you can appreciate great films. I'm saying right here, I still think Goodfellas is better than The Departed if I had to you know, suggest the greatest Scorsese film ever. I just feel like that 
The Departed is a Hollywood movie inside and out, whereas Goodfellas is not. There really isn't much in terms of a structure. There isn't, the, the hero is not necessarily likable at all. Um, and he's kind of he's kind of an asshole when you think about it. Uh, and doesn't really learn an important lesson. Doesn't have a goal. It's, it's not really a movie movie. It's a docudrama. And it's a very different type of story form. Uh, that you know maybe I, but he doesn't learn anything he still didn't learn anything in goodfellas even when he turns on the mob it's only to save his own ass and even that isn't played as something that in the beginning he hates rats people who rat out the mob uh, or the the people who turn on the people who provide them with house and home and you know that they work for and then he learn he never learns he never evolves the ray liotta character never evolves to sort of have a new perspective on it and appreciate his family and say, well, no, this is what's important. My family and I get to live with them and watch my kids grow up. Um, so yes, I'm going to move to Arizona in some shitty place uh, and go into witness protection. And none of that happens. So in any case, It's a Wonderful Life did not work for me. And I, I really suggest, you know, you want to appreciate older films, but if you do watch them, I want you to really look at them and say, how would this be different? How would this be different? What do we, what tools do we have today that these filmmakers didn't have? Or, you know, if you don't want to look at them as tools, what are the boxes that you have to work inside of today that make some of these older films that did not have these restrictions and that could amble along because, you know, that's how films used to work. Uh, what changes would you have to make today? Or what boxes and tools uh, could you use in order to what would it look like if you did it today again miracle on 34th street did get remade because that's a much more clear-cut straightforward audience-friendly film and i would suggest that it's a wonderful life you know uh does not fit into that category it's a good christmas movie with a good feeling a good theme great performances and you know, I, again, I understand why it's appreciated, just not completely for me. Anyway, that is this week's podcast. Again, my screen, my website, officialscreenwriting.com. You can buy my book, The Starter Screenplay, at thestarterscreenplay.com. Free shipping in the United States, reduced price shipping worldwide, and you can download it at amazon.com for your Kindle. I'm Adam Levenberg, and I'll have a new show for you next week.